This morning we continue uh, going through our, our series on the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life and ministry, the earthly life and ministry of, of Jesus. Uh, and we are now in the last week of his life. As, as last week we looked at the triumphal entry of him uh, entering into Jerusalem seated upon a donkey. Uh, and, that, and we're going to be looking at Mark 11, uh, picking up from verse 11 and going to verse 25. And there's actually an overlap with verse 11 from last week to this week. Uh, taking note here that uh, the events that are happening, uh, the main events that we'll be looking at here are just the very next day. Uh, we're going to be starting here as this, just right after Jesus has come into Jerusalem seated upon a donkey. Uh, and he's going to be looking at everything and leaving and then returning back to Jerusalem the next day. Uh, let me pray for us, though, as we begin uh, this time of hearing God speak to us. Lord God, your word is life. It is what we need. Uh, so often we hear other words all throughout out, out the week, words um, from the news, words from neighbors, words from our own hearts, and what we need most of all is your word. We need to hear what you have to say to us here. And so we ask then that all those other words, all those other things that might be coming to mind right now would be blotted back, that would be, be pushed aside so that we might be able to focus upon your word. We ask then, we beg that your spirit would allow us to listen and to not just listen externally, but listen down into our very hearts so that we might be changed. Where your spirit works and moves, there is change. There is new creation. Your spirit moved at the beginning of creation, and there it was. Uh, your spirit is moving now and with the recreation uh, happening within, within our hearts. And so may that continue this morning as we listen. Change us and transform us and allow us to see Jesus more clearly than we have before. Allow us to see him as being more, more beautiful and more believable than we have before. Restore our faith. Strengthen our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read for us Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and of the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Amen. Well, Alyssa and I, uh, my wife, we've, had, we've owned a couple fig trees uh, in our years of marriage. And our first fig tree, it was a black mission fig that I bought for her, and I bought it from the nursery. It began as a singular three-foot stick uh, that I got, planted in a planter there. Just a three-foot stick, like literally, there was nothing else coming off of it. And so I planted it that spring not knowing what, what to expect. And by the end of the summer, it had fully leaved. We had branches coming off of this fig tree, off of this stick, the fig stick, I guess. All right? And then it had fully leaved. And not only had it fully leaved, but we had about a dozen figs, a dozen delicious black mission figs that had grown from this tree that only months before was just a stick. And so we were really excited for the next year. The next year, it it grew again and it looked promising because it started the season well ahead of where it was last year. It already had grown in height. It had grown uh, with branches coming off of it. And then so there are new, numerous new shoots that were coming off of it now. It, again, was, was, was uh, coming into full leaf. It was much more fuller than it was the year before. It was beautiful. We were so excited. Well, if we got a dozen figs from before, how many figs are we going to get this year? But the thing is, very few figs were actually born on that tree that year. I want to say it was maybe four. And unfortunately, the birds got half of them. And it was a huge disappointment then. There was great expectation. There was great promise. Yet in the end, there was nothing. Our passage today is picking up from Jesus' royal entry from last week. Right? This is, again, like I said, the same day, verse 11. It's the same day there. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and he inspects everything. He walks around looking at all the, all the, the temple grounds. In one sense, he's like a king who's walking around inspecting his jurisdiction. He's like a priest overlooking all of the religious affairs. He's looking at all of the sites, all of the people, all of the happenings that are going on there. And particularly because it's the Passover season. It's a busy season. This is the height of the, of the, the, the Jewish calendar here. And so Jesus comes to the place where God has, had designated as his special place of worship. It was tied deeply to the religious identity of these people. Everyone from all across the land, all the Jews, they came on, on pilgrimage every year to the temple for Passover. In fact, to be a Jew was to, to hold the temple in high esteem. More than, than, than we would with like the White House or the Capitol building to American identity. The temple was a place that you visited and you worshipped. It was central to a people whose identity was tied to God 
And it was wrapped up with their religious devotion. And so Jesus is going this, this, this day to inspect the temple and he's going to look for fruit. Just like we went to the fig tree looking for fruit. What sort of fruit is he going to find? Well, what sort of fruit is he looking for? He's looking for righteousness. He's looking for justice. He's looking for proper worship of his people with reverence and awe. He's looking for all of the things that God desires. All of the reasons why he had, God had redeemed them and made him his people in the first place. That he had set his name upon them. All the reasons why he had made them his consecrated people. And so what does Jesus find? How much fruit did he find at the temple? Well, he goes back home. He goes back to to Bethany that night and he invites us to come along the next day and to see what he saw. He takes the disciples to the temple and we go along with them there in the narrative and we see the spectacle. We see just what it is that's going on. A place of worship? Yes, it's a place of worship there. But the first thing encountered as they walked up onto the Temple Mount was actually a place of commerce that was happening in the outer courts. When you would walk into the temple, the first thing would be this large, enormous uh, court outside of the actual temple building itself there. And they had set up this giant place of commerce. They were selling animals for the sacrifices, livestock of various sorts, pigeons if you couldn't afford a a larger animal. There were money changers at their tables uh, exchanging all the various currencies from people from various places of the Roman Empire here, even just various places of Palestine, bringing them together so that they could exchange all their various monies into a common coin. And all of this would have been necessary for pilgrims coming to worship and to offer sacrifices. Again, it was for some people, they were traveling quite a ways. They needed to find an animal to sacrifice there. They needed to have their money changed into some sort of common currency. But where? I mean, here of all places, right there in the temple, there were other locations nearby. There were plenty of other locations nearby. In fact, history tells us that there there were marketplaces all around, even just not far outside the temple. And what happened here was they had set up an open-air bazaar. They had set up a market that was going to be in competition with all of the other markets that were just slightly further away from the temple grounds. And then they could charge the convenience charge, right? And also on top of this, because the temple, the whole mount was, was enormous, some people would take shortcuts to get outside of the city by just, well, let's just cut through the temple. It'd be like from one person, you know, on the street coming here, well, let's just... It's quicker if we just walk through this church building. Let's just go through. It was an enormous spectacle that was happening here. It was like the New York Stock Exchange trading floor, except it was a literal stock exchange, a livestock exchange. All right, there was the bustle of people bumping up with one another. There were the sounds of people bartering and shouting with each other, money clinking, exchanging hands. There was the sounds of animals. There was the smells of animals. And all this was supposed to be in a place of worship? Worshiping whom? Worshiping what? Was this worship to the Lord God? Or was this worship to economics? Was this worship to personal profit? How could you have a a prayerful or a worshipful attitude 
going to the temple after passing through all of this, or even if you were participating in all of the buying and the selling. See, what, what was important here, or more important to these people that were in this, this temple market, wasn't the heart. It was the act. It was the ritual itself of, well, we've got to get our stuff. Let's just buy our, our animals, make our way through here, and then we'll get and we'll do what we're supposed to do. All of this devoid of the heart worship from God. It was all a show. And there's an additional layer to this if you understand the layout of the temple. You go into the whole temple grounds there, and this outer court, this enormous place there was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the outer court before you entered into some of the inner places, and it, it, some of those inner places where only the Jews could enter. And so you had the court of the Gentiles in this whole area, massive, about 300 yards by 250 yards, uh, or 900 feet by 700 feet. This large area for the Gentiles to come to, for the religious outsiders to go and to pray. Uh, They were separated from everyone else by a wall, but at least they could go and pray and offer up their own devotion. It was designed by God in the divinely laid out plans for the temple. So what happened, though, when the bustle was set up there? All of this, this economic, this, uh, this economic uh, bustle. Well, the Gentiles, those whom this, was, this place was for, they were pushed out. It was clear that they weren't wanted there. Now, even those few who stayed said, well, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to try to pray. Do you think that they could pray very well without distraction? With all of that going on? Do you think they even believed that they belonged in that place? Do you think they believed that they actually had a real place there? Well, Jesus gives us a hint along the way as he's going to Jerusalem, as he's going to the temple. He gives us a hint of what he was about to find. And he does so through this example of this fig tree there. It's a foreshadow of the events of what's going to happen here. Now, you have this fig tree, a tree in full leaf. It's got all the leaves, it's bushy, it looks promising. It looks like there's going to be fruit that's found on that tree. And Jesus is hungry, and he goes to look at that tree for fruit. He wants to go look through the leaves, and he does. He begins to examine underneath all the branches, examine underneath all the leaves, but there's no figs there. Now we're told that the, the fig tree, it wasn't in season for figs, though there is still this promise that it held, though. It looked promising, and yet there's nothing at all, there's no fruit The tree gives the illusion of the fruit and goodness that was to be found, but the leaves hid the reality that there was fruitlessness underneath, that there was barrenness underneath, that the things which matter, the desired purposes for the fig tree, for any fruit tree, they weren't there. Jesus went to this tree looking for the fruit that it seemed to hold. Jesus went to the temple looking for the fruit that it seemed to bear on the outside. A temple and its people that would have looked promising. All right, its leaves in full blossom. Leaves of religious ceremony and sacrifice. Leaves of religious heritage as the Lord's covenant people. Leaves of having received the law and the oracles of God. Leaves of having given instruction. Leaves of having been called by the Lord and having his name set upon them. It would have looked vibrant and full of life. And you would expect the proper fruit from this people and from this temple here. But Jesus goes and he's looking for fruits of righteousness, fruits of goodness, of justice, 
Fruits of worship, fruits of prayer, fruits that result from having communion and relationship with God. Fruits of fulfilling Israel's call to be a light to the Gentiles and a light to outsiders. And Jesus gets there and he peers through the leaves as he walks into the temple and this is what he finds. He finds a spectacle. He doesn't find fruit, despite what he should have found. Instead, they were twisting the purposes of the temple right there. There was no approach of reverence. They were actually pushing out the Gentiles, and they were denying the place that they had, the rightful place that they had before the Lord right there. And so Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, the one who came humble as a king, mounted upon a donkey, he now shows his wrath. Jesus shows his righteous anger as he goes and he cleanses the temple. He clears everyone out. He drives out all of the animals. He pushes over all of the tables. He bars entrance to those people who might have wanted to take a shortcut through the temple going outside. And if we think about the miracles of Jesus, it's actually one, we all almost should consider this as being a miracle of Jesus, right? A minor miracle considering the size and the amount of people that were there, and somehow without opposition, he's able to send them all out. But he goes with this right, uh, righteous anger. An anger that expresses the wrath and the zeal of God. And Jesus is angry because Jesus is passionate for everything for which these people were taking away. He was passionate for the glory of God. And he quotes there, as he's cleansing out the temple, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, which is what we read this morning in the Old Testament. As he says, I'm turning this place back into a house of prayer. That's what it was for. This is supposed to be a place where prayer and worship are to be the focus. Prayer not just from acts. Prayer not just from offering a sacrifice, but prayer and worship that comes from the heart. A place designated by God for his people to come here and to commune together in worship. But see, not just a place for religious insiders to do this. He says, you've been making, this is a a place of, uh, or a house of prayer for all the nations. It's a place of prayer for the nations, for outsiders, for people outside the Jewish covenant community to gather together and to come and worship God and to pray And yet these people, the religious insiders here, push them out from their own God-designated court. And in this too, right on the heels of that, he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. He says, you've made it a den of robbers. You've turned my house into a den of robbers. Uh, To quote that venerable uh, early church theologian, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you will not find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. He is wrought there. Now, are they robbing by unfair exchange rates? Yeah, perhaps they may have been. But we can say this with, defini- with, with a definitive way. They were robbing outsiders of their opportunity to worship. And they were robbing God by desecrating a holy place and stealing his glory to fill their own pockets. Why does God get angry? Why is Jesus in such a fervor when he sees this. It's for all those reasons above that they are turning a place of worship to him into a circus. And they are preventing outsiders, other people, from coming to him and worshiping and praying. 
Proper worship and concern for outsiders are sometimes unfairly pitted against each other. Like to be, uh, to be, to be a faithful church, you either have to have, uh, well, we've got to be all our theology for, for worship. We've got to have that down right, and that has to be our, our main focus. Or it has to be, well, no, we just want to make ourselves a church for the outsider to come in and be comfortable. But the thing is, it's not an either or. They can't be pitted against each other. All right, you can take, take worship seriously and understand worship deeply and biblically, theologically, carefully. Approach your worship in, in that way. And you can also be concerned for outsiders and make it an open place. It's not an either or. God cares about both. We can be a congregation that cares about both of these in very serious ways. A congregation concerned about, about both thoughtful worship and welcoming outsiders demonstrates the heart of God. Right? He loves both. That's what it means when Jesus says, go out and make disciples. Make disciples, right? There's, there's something there. Make disciples by teaching them all that I've commanded you, Jesus says. But he also says, go forth. There's the expectation of going to outsiders, of being around outsiders, but yet also the expectation of teaching them. That's the Bible. That's theology. And what God does, what Jesus does here is he takes outsiders and he turns them into worshipers. Where Christ is proclaimed, where he's preached, where he is announced, that's where people are transformed. If you're building a house, If you're building some sort of structure or edifice, you need two things in addition to the materials. You need the proper tools, but you also need the blueprints, don't you? If you only have the tools, you'll build a solid structure, but you don't have any guidance. You might build that house wrong. You might not even construct it with an easy way in. But if you only have the blueprints... The structure that you build might resemble the blueprint, but could it be built in a shaky way? See, if you neglect either, no one enters or no one stays for long when they do get there. See, the theology, the biblical foundations of what we do, those are the tools. But they're sometimes seen as as inaccessible, unfair ways. At the same time, we have also mission mission and vision That's the blueprint, but sometimes they're seen, again, unfairly as being non-foundational. But when both of those are used together, people can be a part. They They enter, and then they stay because the structure is built solid, and it holds, and it's open for outsiders to come in. And God gives us both. God gives us the tools, and he gives us the blueprint. And both of those are necessary. He gives us the tools in his word, in sacrament, in being biblically rooted, having solid foundations. And he gives us the blueprint also of his word. You remember when, when, when and we had in our, our, the assurance of pardon, What do we have? It was from Revelation 7. It was from people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And they're all standing together redeemed, crying out in praise and worship and glory to God. That's the blueprint right there. That's what God is making us as a people. Both of them are necessary for the church. Jesus gives us the word and sacraments as the tools. And he gives us that vision as a holy and a diverse church as the blueprint. Why? So that all will enter And be a part of this worshiping community. See, theology is for worship and it's it's for mission. It's not either or. 
As Jesus, though, the next day passes by that fig tree again, we realize that the fig tree here is a parable. It's a metaphor for Israel and for the temple worship. A place that looked promising, a place full of worship and of spirituality, but a hollow worship and a hollow spirituality. And Jesus makes this known, or makes this known through that he doesn't just desire vague spirituality or empty devotion. All right. Devotion isn't just professed faith. It's a faith which bears fruit. And we heard from James this morning in James 1. It says, don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. It says, true religion is caring for widows and orphans and keeping, one and keeping oneself unstained from the world. See, the fruit comes from faith. Fruit which matches the profession of faith. It is faith in practice. Faith which shows itself. One of the, the great glorious truths that we hold to that came from the Reformation is that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. But yet also, though, we are, that, that faith, though, is never alone. It always bears fruit. You will never have true, vital faith that doesn't also bear fruit as well. John 15, Jesus is talking about being the vine and then his followers being the branches. And he says that, that his, his followers as the branches are those who are clinging to him, right? And branches to the tree or branches to the, the vine, they are drawing all of their life from, from it, right? So that it bears fruit because it is connected to the vine. And Jesus is saying that you as the branches, if you are holding to me, you are connected to me, there will be fruit that, that is born, right? Because you are holding to me, the life from me is going into you and you will bear fruit of righteousness. You will bear fruit that I love. Holding to Jesus is where that faith or where that life comes from. And that life inevitably bears fruit as we hold to him in faith. Again, the fruit that they were to bear, righteousness, justice, peace, care for the foreigner, care for the outsider. And yet they pushed them away under a religious disguise. Jesus came looking for fruit. And it may have looked promising on the outside. They had the temple, they had the priesthood, they had all the religious ceremonies, all the rituals and sacrifices. They had their heritage they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the history of being God's covenant people. All of these were leaves which showed promise of fruit. All which looked like there was flourishing, but they hid the fact that there was no fruit underneath to be had. A barren tree hidden by leaves. A barren temple and religion hidden by ritual. Jesus isn't pleased by empty ritual or religion not just by mere proclamation of faith. He desires fruit. He desires fruit of righteousness. Fruit that grows and takes its life as it is rooted to him, as it clings to him, as it is united to him as the, the vine, and we are the branches. It draws life from him, life that comes from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sees through the leaves he, see, he sees through the leaves of growing up in the church, of having a religious heritage. He sees through the leaves of religious display and the facade there and the spiritual disciplines simply done for their own sake. 
He sees law or the leaves of hollow faith that are devoid of love. It's all fruit that's seen externally here. He wants to see fruit, but fruit that comes from a, a vibrant, vital faith that, that is seen externally. And people come to church, outsiders come to church here hungry, and they need to be filled. Perhaps they see the green leaves from us. Friends, is there, is there good fruit that's also found here with the leaves to nourish and satisfy? What is it among us that they will find that will be good and sweet just like a fig? The fruit that they need is the fruit that is born from Jesus Christ. It's the only sort of fruit that we can bear, fruit from him. Leaves can be a religious display sometimes that we hide behind to disguise a lack of fruit, either intentionally or sometimes inadvertently. Sometimes we're afraid that we'll be found out because of our lack of fruit or or maybe our perceived lack of fruit. And so we put up leaves then to a religious display to hide behind. And maybe we're self-deluded by our, our own religious ceremony and work. And so we put up leaves as a proof to ourselves. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They hid be, themselves behind leaves. Interestingly enough, fig leaves. But it was an attempt for themselves to cover over themselves in their own fear so that they wouldn't be exposed. And what they needed, though, was to be exposed to not trust in their own leaves, to not trust in their own shows that they could put up to try to fool God. But they needed to have their leaves taken away and to make them open to receiving the coverings which God had offered to them. A better covering than the leaves they put up. A covering of skin. A covering of an animal sacrifice a better sacrifice to cover them. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which covers us better than any of our own leaves ever could. The answer for us is to put down our leaves and to come to Jesus in faith and to allow his flourishing, allow his life to bring forth fruit. Jesus curses the fig tree then for its lack of faith or fruitfulness, despite the leaves that it has. He says, if you won't bear fruit like you present yourself to be, then you're, you're, you're useless. Because what good, good is a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit? That's its purpose. That's its intended purpose, right? To bear fruit. Right? Not to be an aesthetically pleasing tree, because really, what is a more aesthetically pleasing tree? It's one, or fruit tree. It's one that actually has fruit on it. Say, oh, there's an apple tree, but I like that apple tree because it's got these big, luscious apples that are hanging from it. In fact, a tree, a barren fruit tree like that would be, would be cut down in an orchard. It doesn't actually do anything. You want a trees that bear fruit, not just trees that have leaves. Jesus does the same by cursing this fig tree. And it's a foreshadow of the temple. The cursing of the tree there is a, is a foreshadow of what, he would, of what would eventually happen. That, that temple is, is it's going to be no more. When Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7-11, when he calls it, uh, when he calls that, you've made this place a den of robbers here. In that whole passage, he's also talking about, or, or in Jeremiah 7, about, well, because this place is a den of robbers, it's going to be taken away. It's not going to bear fruit, and there's no need for it. Which raises the question, if the temple was a place for prayer and worship, what now? Where and how is it to be done? 
Well, Jesus addresses that. He says prayer. He talks about prayer. He says prayer isn't about a place. Prayer is about faith. It's about faith in God. It is to be done with a trust in God. It's not tied to a place. It's not tied to the temple. It's not tied to a church building. It's tied to God, to our communion with God, to faith in God. That's why Jesus says, when when he's talking about prayer, he says, have faith in God. It's done with a trust and a powerful faith in God, knowing who he is, that he hears, that he cares no matter where we are. Pray, worship, ask, ask in faith, he's saying. Ask in faith, remembering who it is that you're praying to. The one who hears us, the almighty God, who's a good father to his people. And these sorts of big prayers that he talks about with big needs, big concerns, they don't require extra rituals. They don't require extra acts to put in there to make them effective. They are heard by God because he loves it. He loves to listen when we come in faith. Prayer is offered with nothing more than faith in a faithful God. He's not just talking to individuals. He's talking particularly to all of his disciples there, which tells us that this is especially true of communal prayer, that God's people are a praying community that isn't tied to a particular place. And because of this important fact here, they're the new temple. The Spirit dwells in the temple, or the Spirit dwelt in the temple before, well, the Spirit dwells now within the church. And prayer and worship is done not in a place, but it's among a people, it's among us. When we gather together, the Spirit is among us when we pray and worship. Today, right now, as we are here worshiping, as we are praying, as we are looking in faith, friends, the Spirit of God is with us. It doesn't matter if we're in a church building. It doesn't matter if we're on the lawn. It doesn't matter if we're in someone's backyard. Who cares? It's not about a place. It's not about a temple. It's not about anything geographically located. It's about the people of God being together. It's a people who are intended to be a place of righteousness and justice and peace, just like that, what it should have been in that temple there, of, of proper worship. Because Christ's spirit is with us. Friends, we can bear fruit. We ought to bear fruit by the power of Christ, by the presence of Christ with us. Fruit that outsiders see and fruit that they find fascinating and be satisfied by because it's the fruit of Christ. It's not our fruit. It's the fruit that comes from Jesus. It's fruit that we are willing to share because it's not our fruit, because it's the fruit of Jesus that, friends, we need just as much as anyone else did. It's fruit that is born from Christ among us. Fruit that's born by his power. Let's look to him and let's pray. Lord God, you care about true worship. You always have You've always wanted your people to come and to put down any sort of ritual and facades of religiousness, but to come offering the heart, come, to come offering themselves as whole people. And God, we ask then by your spirit that you would continue to work and change us into a people, a whole people who are not just professing faith, but that are holding to you by faith and bearing fruits of faith which come forth. Let us be a people who care about true worship and a people who care about mission as well. That we would not just be a people who gather here, 
for our own sake here on a Sunday morning, but a place that where we are, we are enraptured by you, by the vision of you, and that there would be righteousness that would be among us, and that we would be, take care for the outsider to come and be amongst us this morning. Let us not just simply be content with an either-or. Let's not be a people who are, are only open to others or are only concerned about worship, but a people who value both, and that would you make us a people where the two of those meld together. Fill our branches with fruit. We beg of this in the name of Jesus. And we thank you that for his life, for his promise. We thank you for him as we will come to him in the table very shortly here. Prepare us for that in Jesus' name. Amen.